Hello everybody, this is Jacob here with Casual History, and things are going to be a little bit different for about a month or so. Jeffrey is actually out of the country, that lucky dog, but I'm here and I still want to make some awesome podcasts for you guys, so thank you guys so much for taking this journey with me, and let's just go ahead and jump right in. Today we're going to talk about the deadly dancing plague, the world's youngest recorded pirate, and how America's most powerful men created the deadliest flood on record. This is Casual History. It all started with just a few people dancing outdoors in the summer heat. Arms flailing, bodies swaying, and clothes soaked with sweat. They danced through the night and straight into the next day, seldom stopping to even eat or drink, and seemingly oblivious to the mounting fatigue and the pain of their bruised feet. They were still going days later. By the time the authorities intervened, hundreds more were dancing along with them. It's one of the oddest epidemics to be recorded in world history and it happened 500 years ago this summer in the French city of Strasbourg. It was here over the course of three roasting hot months in 1518 that several hundred people developed a compulsion to dance. The dancing kept going to the horror of the crowds who gathered to watch. Some of them collapsed and perished on the spot. Just what was happening? The dancing plague of Strasbourg began in mid-July 1518 when a lone woman stepped outside her house and danced for several days on end. Within a week, dozens more had been seized by the same irresistible urge. The rich citizens who ran the city were not amused. Mystified by the chaos in the streets, the city councilors consulted local doctors who, in keeping with standard medical wisdom, declared the dancing to be the result of overheated blood on the brain. There's a fine line between tough and crazy and you're flirting with it. The councilors implemented what they felt was appropriate treatment. More dancing. They ordered the clearing of an open-air grain market, commandeered guild halls, and erected a stage next to the horse fair. To these locations, they escorted the crazed dancers in the belief that maintaining their motion, they would shake off the sickness. The people even hired pipers and drummers and paid strongmen to keep the afflicted upright and dancing. Those in the grain market and horse fair kept dancing into the full glare of the summer sun. A poem in the city archives explains kind of what happened next. In their madness, People kept up their dancing until they felt unconscious and many died. Pain! Those of pain! The council since it had made a grave mistake, deciding that dancers were suffering from the holy wrath rather than sizzling brains. They opted for a period of enforced penance and banned music and dancing in public. Hey! Hey, come on! That stings! Finally, the dancers were taken to a shrine dedicated to St. Viticus, located in a musty grotto in the hills above a nearby town where the bloodied feet were placed into red shoes and they were led around by a wooden figurine of a saint. In the following weeks, say the Chronicles, most ceased their wild movements. The epidemic had come to an end. This weird chapter in human history raised plenty of hard-to-answer questions. Why did they describe more dancing as a treatment for cooked brains? Why were the dancers made to wear red shoes? How many people died? We could be more confident, I think, in saying what did and did not cause this strange phenomenon. For some time, your godism looked like a good contender. This results from assuming food contaminated with a species of mold that would grow on damp rye and produces a chemical related to LSD. It can induce terrifying hallucinations and violent twitching. 
but it is very unlikely that sufferers could have danced for days. It was clear to observers that they did not want to be dancing. The most credible explanation is that the people of Strasbourg were the victims of a mass psychogenic illness, what used to be called mass hysteria. There had been several earlier outbreaks of dancing in the preceding centuries, involving hundreds or just a few people, nearly in all towns and cities close to the River Rhine. Life in Strasbourg in the early 1500s satisfied another basic condition for this outbreak. The Chronicles recorded plenty of distress that brings out a heightened level of suggestibility. Social and religious conflicts, terrifying new diseases, harvest failures, and spiking wheat prices caused widespread misery. These were ideal conditions for some of the city's need to imagine that God was angry with them. Few events more vividly reveal the bizarre extremes to which our brains can take us in the grip of collective fear. Alright, on to the next. This is the story of the youngest pirate ever historically verified. It's not the story of someone who gave birth into the pirating business. It's not the tale of the boy who set up a boat and tried to run away from home. It's the story of a real boy from a real time sketched from a bare set of facts set out by trial dispositions and archaeological discoveries. On November 9th of 1716, John King, nine years old, and his mother, whose name is not recorded, were passengers on the sloop Benetta, captained by Albaja Savage. The Bonetta was en route to Jamaica when they were attacked by a notorious pirate, Black Sam Bellamy. Then they proceeded to plunder the Bonetta for 15 days. Exactly what went on during that time, we will never know. Bellamy's crew did not have a reputation for torture and rape, but Sam himself was politically motivated and spent some time arguing with Bonetta's soldiers and captain. Sam's position was that honest men could not earn an honest wage under the current system, and he advised Savage and his crew to become pirates so they could have their own money and be free of the class system that viewed them as barely human. Captain Savage maintained that piracy was against the laws of gods and men, and refused to even think of such a thing. But at least one of Bellamy's speeches was recalled by Savage during a later disposition. This is one of the few occasions where a pirate's own words was used to describe his own profession. We don't know what inspired John King, but at the 11-day point, he approached Bellamy and asked to join the pirate crew. It should be noted that the King family was solidly upper class. John had no particular reason to sympathize with the pirates, other than Bellamy's rhetoric. None of the pirates took the child seriously, but he could not back down. He wanted to join Bellamy's crew and become a pirate, so he kept asking. You're not that guy, pal. Trust me. You're not that guy. Over the next couple days, the pirates began to change their minds. Miss King did not take kindly to the radical idea. She at first tried to restrain her son, and then asked Captain Savage to speak with him. John held out. He wanted to be a pirate. When his mother refused to think of such a thing, John threatened to throw himself into the ocean. Then he physically attacked her. I know who I am. I'm a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude. The pirates, possibly amused, possibly emotionally moved by this well-to-do child's effort to join them, began to side with the boy. In the passion of the mother-son argument, Miss King blurted out, All right then. Just be a pirate. John King signed the ship's articles and officially joined Bellamy's crew. Bellamy sailed away and the Bonetta continued her trip to Jamaica, where Captain Savage gave a deposition against the pirates. Giving details about John King's defection, he was quite clear. The child was not forced, not kidnapped, and he wanted to be a part of Bellamy's crew, and he had. But why did an upper-class boy want so badly to become a pirate? Few hints linger. When John threatened to throw himself into the sea, he specifically mentioned suicide, 
His willingness to physically attack his mother also indicates that there was something more wrong with the King family. Why was Miss King traveling alone? Why was she willing at any point to hand over her child to pirates? A single line in Savage's disposition offers more than one tantalizing hint. The boy's father didn't like him. Why? Had John King been born as a result of some affair of his mother's? Did John have some mental or learning disability that prevented him from fitting in with his family? Was his father abusive? Such things weren't written down for the 18th century court record. Captain Savage's point was that John King willingly became a pirate, and therefore liable for hanging if he was caught, no matter what his age was. The pirates left no written records of their young recruit. Fate, however, took this young pirate in hand. On April 26, 1717, Sam Bellamy and his new ship went down with nearly all hands in an unseasonable storm off the coast of Maine. Only two of the crew survived. John King was lost forever. His life as a pirate had only lasted three months. He chose poorly. Nearly 300 years later, a man named Barry Clifford set out to find the Sam Bellamy's sunken treasure ship. Cliff's underwater excavations first found the ship's bell, proof that the wreck underneath the examination was in fact the lost pirate ship. It was there that the divers found the last remains of John King, a leg bone from a nine-year-old boy clad in silk stocking wearing an expensive French shoe. John King had been trapped underneath a cannon when the ship went down. Today, his remains are a part of the Pirate Museum in Provincetown, Massachusetts. This next story is about how America's most powerful men caused America's deadliest flood. Disaster was far from the minds of Pennsylvania's rich like Andrew Carnegie, Andrew Melton, and Henry Clay Frick when they joined the secretive South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. Founded in 1879, the club was designed to give the most powerful men in Pennsylvania a quiet retreat, a place to enjoy the magnificent wealth they had accumulated in the steel railroads and other industries. The club owned a private and artificial lake where they gathered a clubhouse of private cottages to mingle and enjoy the pleasures of nature. They picnicked, swam, fished, puffed on cigars, all taking advantage of a chance to relax. But the lake where so much wealth and power gathered was built on a shaky foundation. Before the club had bought it, the unnamed reservoir was part of Pennsylvania's canal system. Once it came into the hands of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, they modified it to their recreational interests. They added a fish screen into the spillway, the structure built to keep water from building up too high and straining the dam, and most importantly, they lowered the dam which sat right above Johnstontown. When an unusually strong storm hit the area on May 28, 1889, pounding the area between 6 and 10 inches of water in just 24 hours, water levels at the dam began to rise. On May 31st, Elijah Unger, who married the manager of the club, looked outside and began to worry about the rising waters. He supervised a group of Italian laborers as they frantically dug a new spillway and tried to unclog the existing one. They were too late. As the dam burst, a 30 to 40 high foot wave rushed 14 miles towards Johnstown. The flood was as wide as the Mississippi River and three times as more powerful as Niagara Falls. As it hit Johnstown, all hell broke loose. Locomotives weighing 170,000 pounds were ripped from the railroad tracks and swept thousands of feet. Debris piled up 40 feet high. Some caught fire as it hit bridges and buildings. People were sucked from buildings and tossed into the raging torrent. When the waters finally receded, the extent of the damage became clear. According to the Johnstown Area Heritage Association, 
2,209 people died, almost 400 of them children. Among the dead, 99 entire families. The $17 million in damage included 1,600 obliterated homes and four square miles of complete destruction. In the aftermath, bodies were found as far away as Cincinnati, Ohio, more than 400 miles away. The world rushed to help. The American Red Cross, led by Clara Barton, worked tirelessly to help keep the injured and homeless residents in its first major initiative. The workers were like morticians, and builders came from all over the country. Money poured in too. It was the deadliest non-hurricane flood in American history, and the people wanted answers. However, the powerful industrialists whose modifications had caused the flood were never held legally accountable. In court, they claimed that it was only lowered the dam by one foot, and the flood was caused by an act of God. Individuals who sued all lost in court, and some even went bankrupt. Although the American legal system soon adapted precedents that made it possible to hold defendants liable for the modifications to land, the rich people behind the Johnstown flood walked off scot-free. Nobody, it seemed, was willing to challenge America's most powerful men. That changed in modern years as scientists and historians worked to reconstruct what happened during that fateful flood. Only in 2013 did researchers from the University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown find the real truth about the club's claims with help of hydraulical research and advanced mapping. They determined that contrary to the club's claims, the dam had been lowered by three feet, not one, and that change reduced the dam's ability to discharge stormwater by half. It turns out that the flood could have actually been prevented only if the rich people of the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club had been willing to trade a little bit of their leisure for the safety of the town below. All right, well, this was this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed the short story style. Let me know what you guys think. I'm going to be changing some things up, obviously, and having some fun with this, so I really appreciate you guys listening, and I will see you next week. 